Well, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. I'm talking to you today from North Carolina, and uh, the great state of North Carolina, I might say, the Tar Heel State. Uh, well, it's it's also the Wolfpack State, and I guess the Blue Devil State. <laughs> on it goes, on yeah, it goes. Wake Forest, uh, yeah, Demon Deacon. Yeah, Demon Deacon, on, on it goes, on it goes. North Carolina A&T. Anyway, this is the Bill Bennett Show, and I am Bill Bennett wherever I am. We are a podcast that talks about America. We talk about our president. We try to look at him fairly and objectively. We talk about the existential threats to America. We're also these days talking a lot about elections. Let me tell you about our guest today. Honored to speak with Secretary Robert Wilkie. He's the United States Secretary of Veterans Affairs. I met with him a bit bit ago and asked him to come on. He said he would. We'll also hear from a new um, contributor, Jennifer Braceres. She's a political columnist. She's a senior fellow, Independent Women's Forum, and a former commissioner of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, Jennifer is uh, lives in Boston, and uh, we'll talk to her about women and equity and sports and related issues. Hot topic, big topic, controversial. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. So let's welcome Secretary Robert Wilkie to the show. He's the United States Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Secretary, how oh, are you? I am fine, sir. How are you? Great. Wonderful for you to join us. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, and thank you for visiting with me a few weeks ago. Uh, it was our my pleasure, indeed, indeed. Thank you. Secretary, let me ask you this. Um, yeah. When people think of Veterans Affairs, yeah. they, uh, they tend to think of VA hospitals, but the job's bigger right. than that, right? It's much bigger, bigger than that. It, it encompasses the, the length and breadth of the country with um, a system of national cemeteries. Um, it is the dispenser of the GI Bill, which was signed by President Roosevelt 75 years ago uh, last month. Um, We provide benefits for almost 10 million American veterans. Um, In the current uh, iteration of the GI Bill, um, we are providing uh, educational benefits to those who volunteered to serve after the attacks uh, of September 11th, 2001. So um, we cover the entire country. Uh, We do have 173 hospitals, that is true, but uh, that's only part of the responsibilities that this uh, department has and responsibilities that date back to Lincoln's time. And I know the historian you are, I just visited um, Toma, Wisconsin, President Lincoln signed three orders the day before uh, he went to Ford's Theater uh, to create veterans centers in Togus, Maine, Dayton, Ohio, and Toma, Wisconsin. And those were the last three official acts of his presidency and of his life. We read in the papers about the veterans hospitals, given what you just said, uh, uh, what percentage of your work... Um, or what percentage of the load of the department uh, is uh, is hospitals? Is it twenty percent? Uh, no, sir. It's so I, I presented the largest budget in the history of this department. Um, Two hundred twenty billion dollars was the uh, offer I gave to the Congress, and of that, ninety four billion uh, goes to health care. The rest will go to our one hundred thirty six cemeteries. Uh, and the and the other portion of that will go to uh, benefits to uh, those who use the GI Bill, their dependents, 
uh, survivors' benefits, things like that. Uh, you mentioned the cemeteries. What, what is your responsibility? Do, do you have the responsibility to care for those cemeteries? Yes. We have 136 cemeteries across the country, uh, some of them um, created uh, by Lincoln himself. And um, we are constantly expanding um, our cemetery footprint. Uh, it is our policy that we have a, a, a federal cemetery within 100 miles of, of every veteran in the country. And uh, those are a, a living legacy. And one of the things that uh, I've tried to do here is also make them places for study. Um, bringing high school students into our cemeteries across the country um, so that they can learn the stories uh, behind the men and women who are memorialized there, uh, everywhere from the Punch Bowl in the Pacific to um, sure. uh, the National Cemetery in Maine. Sure, sure. Uh, so Arlington is under your charge, is that right? No, Arlington, Arlington is part of the Department of the Army. So, I got you. Um, okay. it, it's interesting you ask because I'm inheriting from the Army uh, a series of cemeteries in the Pacific Northwest uh, that the Army once took care of when they had a larger uh, military footprint in that part of the country. So I will take control of six former Army cemeteries uh, next year, um, taking control of one former Navy cemetery in Alameda, uh, California. So we're, we're expanding in that area as the active force moves into other parts of the country. Yes, well, good, good, good. Let's go back to the beginning. You're a veteran, correct? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Tell us about your both. service. Yes, well, I start with, with my father. Um, I am the son of a highly decorated combat soldier. Uh, my father was severely wounded in the invasion of Cambodia, and it took him three years to recover uh, oh. before he was allowed, through the good graces of the great Craig Abrams, to uh, return to Fort Bragg in the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, I've served in both the Navy and the Air Force. I'm an intelligence officer. I'm still in the Air Force Reserve. I'm, I'm more of a planner where my father was on the, the kinetic end. But I'm the heretic in the family. I'm the first Wilkie since the war with Mexico, who was not an artillery officer. So right. I get it. I get it from the airborne and the artillery mafia. <laughs> I get. I get it. Uh, one of our sons is a is a veteran, Marine yeah. veteran. He uh, this is kind of similar. He wanted to be a, a boot on the ground. He wanted infantry in that special new infantry unit that they're developing, but uh, he got handed logistics. And so yeah, it's pretty important work. And uh, so when, when we have a major family task, you know, I th he, he says, you know, I really i am not responsible, Dad, or very good at anything less than the, the movement of 2,000 people, you know. One North Please. Carolina statistic that I'm proud of. Um, I always say North Carolina Highway 24 is the most important piece of road in America because on one end, the western end, since Fort Bragg, the largest installation in the free world, there is many active-duty troops at Fort Bragg than they have in the British Army. And then 40% of the entire Marine Corps is at the eastern end of Highway 24. So as a North Carolinian, I always say if, if America goes nine times out of ten, it'll be paratroopers 
from Fort Bragg or Marines from Lejeune and Cherry Point or the tip of the spear. Well, I feel very safe. I'm actually talking to you from North Carolina today. I think I told yes, you, you our house yes. was ravaged by the last hurricane, but we're back in. Yes, but I sir. always feel very safe here. I always yes, feel very do. safe, surrounded by Absolutely. the U.S. military. Surround- what, what are your major challenges today, Secretary well, Wilkie? Yes, sir. The major challenges, Bill, um, first of all, transforming the institution, uh, creating a modern 21st century healthcare administration. Uh, we've just put in place the Mission Act, which is the most uh, far-reaching uh, program that this department has engaged in since the GI Bill was signed in 1944. Uh, what it does is it opens the aperture on choice so that if we cannot provide a service or if a veteran lives too far from a VA facility, we give that veteran the opportunity uh, to go into the private sector. Uh, President Trump has actually revolutionized the way we look at veterans by affirmatively saying that the institution of the VA is not at the center of a veteran's health care. It's the veteran's health care that is the center of his life. Uh, the other thing that we're doing is that we're allowing America's veterans to experience what their fellow citizens experience by giving them uh, access to urgent care uh, and keeping them out of the emergency room. But I, I will tell you one other one other issue that, um, and it's really, a, I hate to use the word crusade, but it's something that you started when I was starting uh, in this business back in the, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, we are at VA experiencing what the rest of the country is experiencing, tragically, the effects of the opioid uh, crisis. It hits us as hard as it hits any community. Uh, we have put things in place, procedures in place, where we've reduced the prescription of uh, opioids by about 51%. Uh, we're offering whole health approaches to uh, replace opioids. Um, but I'm, I'm gathering for a fight where there are many people in, in the United States, some in politics, who are asking me uh, to substitute um, marijuana uh, for those opioids. And I have said in front of congressional committees that is a terribly dangerous road for us to travel, that this is not Janis Joplin's marijuana. This stuff is 40%. 50 percent uh, stronger than what happened with exper- America experienced in the 60s and 70s. And um, that's a fight that I'm happy to take on. I'm glad you're taking it on. I congratulate you for it. You're absolutely right about those numbers. And uh, I point out that young people, uh, not necessarily the people in the military, but young people generally, uh, 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 there are more young people in treatment for marijuana than all other drugs combined. Um, and and it is a gateway drug. I mean, you that's people right. use marijuana. Marijuana and then sometimes nothing else. But if you get into other things, you started with marijuana almost for sure. And and there's one one other area that you and I discussed, and and it's all part of a continuum. Um, We are experiencing the loss of 20 veterans a day to suicide, and I'm in charge of the president's task force on suicide. And, And I have argued that if we just look at the last tragic act in a veteran's life, we're just going to produce another federal report that no one will read. Um, if we do not open the door on a national conversation about life in this country, then I fear, and you are more of an expert on this than I will ever be, that those numbers that we were seeing, that we are seeing, and this is these are numbers in high school communities and young adult communities as well as veterans, that those numbers are going to continue 
to explode. And if we don't have that national conversation on life, um, we're going to be looking at, at tragedies that dwarf what we're seeing today. I'm glad you made that broader connection, Secretary Wilkie, because I just finished reading a paper. I can't remember the author. I'll find it and get it to you. You've probably read it. But it's about loneliness and suicide in American life. Yes. Part yes. of this has to do with the breakup of family, non-formation of family, loss of connection uh, that, that people yes. have. So yes. I'm glad you put it put the broad stroke on it. It's not just the military, right? No. It's not at all. It's yeah. not. And the, the benefit that we have with the president asking VA to lead the task force is that most Americans understand at some level what it means to put a uniform on. And if we can offer a way forward, and when I talk about a way forward, I, I mention addiction uh, and mental health. I mean, we're not even at the Sputnik stage uh, in terms of getting our arms around mental health in this country, um, as well as homelessness. But uh, what you said is is absolutely on target, and that is the law, the loss of connectivity, the loss of basic, the basic ability of Americans to speak to each other. And I'll give you an example that happened here. Um, young man went exclusive private school here in the district, uh, took his own life. I believe he was 16, took his own life because he thought life was not worth living because he broke up with a girlfriend. Yeah. And we're seeing more and more of that across the country as people do not connect as people. They connect through machines. They connect through the Internet. They connect through games. And um, it is a societal crisis that um, is overwhelming us. I'm glad you'll, you'll paint with the broad strokes. I was going to say, whatever the rates are in the military, I'll bet you they are just parallel, maybe not worse, maybe not better than, uh, than in society at large. But I want to come back to an, an, another comparison, if I could, that, that you mentioned in passing about the, your testimony and your resisting marijuana as an alternative treatment. When I was uh, became the first drug czar, um, I remember I sought advice from all quarters. Uh, you know, it's a good way to do your job. Go find the smartest people you can and listen to them. Right. One of them was Colin Powell, and he took me yep. aside, General Powell, and said, take a look at the military. Uh, he said, I won't say we solved it, but we did an awfully good job, I think, on getting people off drugs. Uh, and, I, and I looked at it, and I think I think he was right. It wasn't 100%, but it would be ironic, wouldn't it, uh, if the yeah. military, which has had a great record on this, were to reverse course and all of a sudden start uh, recommending people toke up. Oh, absolutely. And I will give you one personal vignette from my Please. childhood. I mentioned my father going back to the 82nd. Uh, I can remember as a youngster, my father, as a senior officer in America's most decorated combat unit, having to arm himself to go into the barracks of the All-American Division. This is in the immediate aftermath of Vietnam when the entire social structure of the military collapsed in on itself. And here was an elite unit, the elite unit of uh, the conventional forces. And I saw it. And um, I heard the officers talking about that crisis, and General Powell was absolutely right. He was a, a young officer at that time, a feel-grade officer, and in, and in his life, he battled it, and he talked about it all the way up the chain. And the military was able to uh, turn the corner on, on marijuana and drug use. 
Uh, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a great story and, and one that uh, bears repeating. I, I want to talk to you a little bit uh, before we have to let you go to your many responsibilities. You made me feel guilty when you told me how many things you do. So I'm going try to try to keep my questions brief. But it's a better it's a better spirit today, isn't it, about veterans? I mean, I think the president yeah. has led here. At, you know, I just, we're just coming off that Fourth of July thing, which was great. Yeah, that's right. But there's just fun. a better better feeling about the military, uh, more right. uh, much more positive, I think. Yes, it, it is. And, um, you know, I, I remember when my father and his colleagues could not wear their uniforms off post, yeah. and that's in southeastern North Carolina. Not Berkeley or, or Cambridge, where you went to law school, um, could not wear their uniforms off post in North Carolina because of the times. Um, and, and I do think it's better. Uh, and I do think this the president's evocation of the spirit of 41 million Americans who've served since the first shots fired at Lexington um, is in tune with where the American people are. And um, it's a profound change that I've seen in my lifetime. But as everything, when it comes to the spirit, it's always fungible. And um, if we don't promote military service as an honorable life, if we don't expand opportunities to serve in the military through things like junior ROTC, particularly, and I wanted to do this when I was undersecretary, but I moved here before we put it in place, getting young people, particularly in our hardest hit areas, uh, getting them familiar with that type of public service. Um, if we don't continue to do those things, then we'll go right back to the 1970s, and then yeah. we'll be in a heck of a mess. Yeah, that which raises an issue that uh, you know is not at me for a long time, um, and that is the whole question of the draft and and uh, right. you know voluntary enlistment. And there is right. this to be said. I, I guess in the end of the day, I'm, I'm for the all volunteer army, but the, right. the pull of the other thing for me is. First of all, almost everybody I know who went into the military was better for it. You know, it's yep, just it's absolutely. a it's a it's a great school if you'll take that from the former Secretary of Education. Yes. I mean, it's a great right. people, and especially for people whose circumstances aren't so great. Um, you know, it, it it provides order, it provides discipline, it provides motivation, opportunity, uh, and all sorts of things. But the other thing is it, it, back to the word we were using before, Secretary Wilkie, connection. Um, yes. You know, how what. What's our total military force today uh, as a percentage of the population? Well, it's only so – you can do the math better. You're better educated. So it's about about 2 million people in uniform in right. a country of 330 million. Right, right, right. So, yeah, so less than less than 1%, half percent. I'm not right. better educated. I'm better schooled. I just went to more <laughs> school than you did. Doesn't mean I got smarter, as a, as, as, you know, as a conservative will tell you, you know, just because you right. went to these places. But, yeah, but how do we make that connection? I, I mean, I do think it is good uh, that the pres- what the president's doing, what right. you're doing. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, how do we remind people? Of this. You know. I, I thought a very handy thing, you know, it seemed to me was uh, whoever came up with the idea, maybe it was you, you know, when you see a guy in uniform at the airport, thank him. And you see this happening all the time now, and it's a great yeah. thing. It certainly wasn't me. I was too young when yeah, that sure. phenomenon yeah. began to emerge. Um, and I, I do think your great hero had a, had a lot to do with that, and that was Ronald Reagan. Um he meant morning in America was more than an aphorism. Um, he meant that there was 
a nobility in America that was made manifest by those who served in uniform. And he began to change the trajectory of the country and the, the attitudes of Americans toward the those who had served, particularly in the aftermath of Vietnam. But I will tell you one thing that worries me, and it worried General Mattis. I think he's, he's, he's even written a book about it. We, are, we do have a danger in this country, and that is the danger of recruiting the military from one particular part of the country. Um, the last statistics that I read when I was Undersecretary of Defense say that 60% of the officers in the country come from 11 states. Um, 53% of all ranks come from those 11 states. And Excuse me, what are the chief recruiting states for that? That is, what are the chief be, states? That would be Virginia over to Texas. I got you. South, Southern Strip, Southern yeah, Band. Right, okay. right. right. Um, and there are entire swaths of the country that have completely checked out of military service. And that is dangerous for the republic. Uh, which is one of the reasons why when I was at the Pentagon, I, I really wanted to uh, have us invest more in programs like Junior ROTC um, to get that opportunity out there. Uh, but it's even deeper than that, and it goes to education in this country and uh, the promotion of American history as uh, something that is worthy and noble. And we, you and I can talk for hours about that. But um, we need to have more Americans aware and have more Americans participate in, in the armed services. Yeah, so that it isn't a foreign thing. I, I, I might have told right. you the story when we met, but just a brief anecdote, and feel free to use it. Uh, when our younger son, who joined the Marines, did did, uh, did OCS training while at Princeton, uh, couldn't do it on campus, so he had to had to go off somewhere right. else. But but right. uh, he was one of two grad in the graduating class of 2011 uh, who right. joined the military. Uh, two things happened, uh, Secretary. One, a lot of the parents said to us, "What happened?" You know, what went right. wrong? Nothing right. went wrong. You know, he's not going to sit in a cubicle in Wall Street. He's joining the Marine right. Corps. Right. The second thing that happened is after the commencement ceremony, which had a u- usual kind of Ivy League bashing of the administration, then the uh, 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 it, was a, it was a bashing of Bush, even though Obama was president. Uh, they still right. went back and bashed right. President Bush. There was right. a ceremony in the back of uh, on the lawn behind Joe's Eating Club at Princeton where two Marines, two two Hispanic American Marines came up and swore him in. And when they started, there was a party going on on the back deck, a graduation party. As it proceeded with the flags and the oath, it got quiet back there on the porch. And those kids looked and stared and realized, as I put it, something that mattered was going on. Yes, and, uh, you know, that that was that was a, that was a moment of instruction that I don't think those young people, graduates, bright people at Princeton had had over the last four years. Yeah. Um, you know, because when you join the military, who's H.G. Wells said you, 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 you join a higher commitment. Right. You now are serving for others. Excuse me. I don't mean right. to run on. You know this stuff better than I. No, but it was so no. poignant. It was so poignant. The, the parents saying what happened to your son that he would do this. And then right. these kids seeing the significance of it, you know, and quieting down and realizing something important was going on, taking well, the oath. We've seen it in the West before. Um, and you, you, you know it better than anyone when the members of the Oxford Union in the mid-1930s said, no longer will we fight for king and country. And 
plunge Britain into the apathy of appeasement at a time when uh, Hitler was on the rise, Stalin was ravaging uh, his country. I don't mean to to make extreme uh, comparisons, but when you have that attitude in the country's elite colleges, uh, and we've had it since Vietnam, uh, that is a danger for society at large. Uh, and uh, but this goes back to what the president's been doing, and that is saying that um, Americans who who serve their country should be celebrated. And that has taken another form here. Uh, there's never never been a president. I'm a pretty good historian. A uh, president in the post World War II world who made veterans the centerpiece of his campaign and then his administration, as this one has. And uh, I think it bears fruit. I think it does. I'm going to let you go in a a, a minute here, but just a a reflection. Uh, I remember when I was doing the education business, someone said to me, well, in the public schools you can teach uh, art history, but you can't you can't mention religion. And I said, "How would you teach the history of Western art without mentioning religion? No more Madonnas, right?" In the That's same right. way that you mentioned history before, how could you do a U.S. history, a survey course, the basic junior year and high school course in American history, without talking about the American military? How could Absolutely. you? You couldn't. You couldn't. Um, and there's another thing uh, you mentioned. Um, religion and, and its place in Western civilization. Uh, so on July 3rd, I issued a directive that uh, reversed the Obama administration's restrictions on uh, the display of religious symbols in our VA hospitals, uh, uh, taking the shackles off of the chaplains. I mean, Bill, there were places um, in our VA where people were afraid if youngsters, and I did this when I was in Fayetteville as a youngster, go to the VA with the choir and sing the Christmas carol. They were afraid to even do that. And I walked into the Manchester, New Hampshire VA, and there was the missing man table. And they had to lock, they felt they had to lock, put under lock and key under plexiglass, a Bible that had been carried by a resident of Manchester, New Hampshire during the bulge. And, um, the spiritual well-being of our troops, of our veterans, is just as important as the medical and technical competence of our doctors and our nurses. Sure. Um, and it's an affirmation of America's values. I love what Gorsuch said uh, in his concurrence in the um, the Maryland uh, Cross case, where he said, just because you're offended doesn't give you standing to sue. And uh, I think we, we have to get back to those old, old verities and... And, and respecting those uh, those things that made us great. Very well said. Very well said. And maybe if we got back to them, people wouldn't even be offended if they really knew what was behind all that, you know? Absolutely. The, Absolutely. the debt that we owe. We're going to let you go. We owe you a debt. We're so glad you're there. Thank you very much. You have an important task, and uh, the president's chosen the right man for it. Thank you, Secretary well, Wilkie. Well, thank, thank you. It's always an honor to talk with you. Claude, uh, nice interview with the Secretary. I had a very good meeting with him, mm-hmm. and... Uh, you know, he uh, he was more evocative today. We were sort of down to business about drugs in the military when I saw him. But I thought a number of evocative and thoughtful things mm-hmm. about the military. What struck you? I didn't realize that so many of the individuals serving in our military is coming from a small portion of the country. Uh, he said that portion, of the, I guess, the south and towards the southwest from Virginia down to Texas 
as where a large percentage of the uh, men and women who are uh, volunteering for our military services, uh, where they're from. I think the percentages are higher. Charlie Rangel, former congressman from uh, Harlem, used to talk about, you know, the blackening of American military that was increasingly, you know, uh, African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans. And I think they still are disproportionately represented, if that makes sense. That is a higher number in the military than in the general population. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that's a bad thing, but I don't think those numbers are as stark as what the Secretary said. Take that ban from Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, uh, across Arkansas, Texas, uh, Georgia, and that's where you're getting an awful lot of your military and your military officers. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I am still concerned about the connectivity uh, of, you know, of the military with the broader population because, uh, you know, my son Joe, as you know, very popular guy, good guy. People like him. But, you know, a lot of his classmates just could not they could not compute. Mm-hmm. This business about what you're doing, what? Why would you do that? What's the problem? You know, maybe you, do you not have a future? Do you not? Yeah. You didn't, didn't get a job offer? Yeah. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, that that is a problem because uh, I remember I was I was I didn't want to tell him another story because I was talking too much during the interview. But I was the gridiron speaker one year, which means this is this big exclusive club in Washington. The press puts on a dinner, and for a while it was just press members and. And uh, cabinet members and the president usually speaks. And then the person from the opposite party of the president is chosen to speak. And Bill Clinton spoke at uh, Gridiron Dinner. And I was asked to speak on the Republican side, the conservative side. And uh, I got up and gave a speech. And I did this kind of faux tribute to the press about how great it was and the free press. And, of course, I believe in the free press and so on. But I was saying, you know, the press is great. And I said, a great defense against tyranny and totalitarianism. However, if they're coming over the walls, I'll take the Marine Corps over the staff of the Washington Post. <laughs> and they laughed. Uh-huh, you know. sure. uh-huh. uh, I mean, I think it's fine. But when the, when the chips are down, mm-hmm. give me the core. Right. You know? no, that's anyway. It. That's it. All right. Good. Well, great conversation. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll go next to Jennifer Braceres. We'll talk about women competing as women, men competing as women, women competing as men. What? Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. Stay with us. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Jennifer Braceres joins us now. She's a political columnist, senior fellow, Independent Women's Forum, and a uh, former commissioner of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, your updated column, June 24th, who's eligible to compete in women's sports teams? That seemingly simple question is at the heart of a lawsuit filed last week by three Connecticut teenage girls. Who were the girls who filed the lawsuit, and why did they file it, for the benefit of the audience? Sure, yeah. Um, There are three young women who are elite high school runners, and one of them uh, is a named plaintiff. The others are anonymous at this point because they're terrified of backlash. So um, right now they're just Jane Doe plaintiffs. And they brought this lawsuit because they compete in these state track meets. Um, and to, two of the top runners in the state of Connecticut are, are individuals who were born male, transitioned to female, and are now competing against the girls. And in the case of, of the named plaintiffs, um, whose name is Selena, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce the last name, Sewell, I think, um, she 
came in eighth in one of her races, and the two biological males came in first and second. Had they not competed, she would have come in sixth and qualified for the next level of, of competition. And so she argues that because they were allowed to participate, um, she was denied the benefit of moving on to the next level. So and they're arguing that it, that it violates Title IX and that they're not able to, to compete. Uh, they're not able to compete for their sport. Title IX says or mandates that schools have to provide separate women's teams, right? Well, Title IX just says that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex in educational programming. And, you know, for time immemorial, we've assumed that that meant sex-segregated um, athletics, right? We've always segregated our athletics on the basis of sex because we understand that biologically and scientifically, girls and boys are different. And if you had integrated sports, girls would have very little opportunity to compete. So the statute doesn't specifically say that you have to have sex-segregated teams, but it's interpreted to allow that. And the regulations allow it because, because of the science. Right. Uh, I guess you you have to say science now. You can't say common sense or what's obvious. Is that right? <laughs> right, right. So I, I here's, here's I have a lot of questions about this because I'm kind of dumbfounded. Uh, and maybe you know maybe this is a this is a generational issue or something. I'm just not getting this. These guys who said they were in transition and ran with the women's track team are guys. No. So. What's interesting about the Connecticut case, and I don't know their medical records, but what's interesting about the Connecticut case is Connecticut allows transgender women who are individuals who are born male to compete without any restriction. So not only were they born male, they don't have to have sex reassignment surgery. They don't have to take hormones. They don't have to suppress their testosterone. Under the Connecticut policy, Men can run completely as they were born in the women's division. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that's, that just nuts? They, yeah. So that's a more, much more extreme policy than, say, the NCAA rules, which say, okay, if you were born male, you can compete in a women's division as long as you've suppressed your testosterone for a year. Now, even that, I think, is, yeah. is insufficient. Yeah. But, but just to give you an example of how extreme the Connecticut policy is, and, there, and 19 states allow uh, transgender athletes to compete unrestricted, is what they call it, meaning without hormone replacement, without surgery. Okay. I have a lot of questions, but this is the one that keeps coming up the most often. Okay. I'm the, I'm the father of sons, Okay. Um, yep. so I, I, you know, and I, and I, I joke, you know, I don't understand women been married 37 years. I'm beginning to understand the woman I've been living with for 37 years, yeah. but, but, I, but I still mess stuff, you know, <laughs> it just goes right by me anyway. Um, so I, you know, I'm not the father of daughters, but if I were the father of daughters, father of these three, I'd be going nuts. I, if I were the father of any daughters, I think right. anywhere in the country, I'd say, what are you doing to my daughter's athletic chances here? Right. So I'm the mother of three daughters and one son. Okay. And one, one of my daughters is a Division One athlete at Dartmouth College. She plays field hockey. Mm-hmm. And I can guarantee you that if biological males were allowed to play and compete for, you know, Ivy League spots, on, on a field hockey team that not one of the members of her team would make the team. 
in comparison to the men, right? So as a mother of a Division One athlete, I will say that it's very concerning because as athletic as, as your daughters can be, um, they will almost always be beat by a man. What does your daughter think of that? She's there in an Ivy League cocoon uh, where this stuff is, you know, no doubt promulgated, this, this uh, stuff, uh, political correctness. Does she agree with you or not, or does prefer you didn't talk about it? Honestly, we haven't discussed it, but I will say she used to play ice hockey when she was in high school, and she did play on a team with, I'll, I'll call it a gender nonconforming individual. And I remember when she first walked into the locker room, she, she texted me and she said, Mom, there's a boy in our locker room. And she was really concerned. It turned out to be a biological girl who looked very much like a boy, and, and she was a biological girl and she played on a girl's team. It ended up not being an issue. But, um, you know, if it had been the other way around, if it had been a biological male in her locker room and on her team, I... I I, I don't know how she would have reacted. How would have you reacted? How would have you reacted? Probably not happy. Probably not happy. I guess, I guess, um, you know, I remember when uh, the whole Bill Clinton thing, I remember my friend Tim Russert said, you know, uh, if he hadn't done this with Monica Lewinsky, he'd be screaming it from the rooftops. The fact that he's not screaming it from the rooftops, but only mumbling suggests he's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's guilty as charged. Why aren't, parents screaming from the rooftops on this, taking the chances. This kid, this young woman is a great runner. She would have qualified. These two guys right. step up. I saw the, the footage. I mean, sure, they're big. They're bigger. They're more muscular. Right. They're, you know, right. the, uh, so I, I, I guess that's my question. What is the Washington Post says? The democracy dies in darkness or in silence, maybe. Right. I think there are three reasons. I think the first is the reason that two of the young women in the lawsuit aren't willing to use their own names, and that is that they're afraid of being called haters and, you know, having people protest outside their homes and, and all of the things that come with, you know, sometimes taking controversial positions. I think that's very scary to people. Um, I think another reason is some parents and people think that this is, perhaps not that common and that maybe it's making a big deal about something that is not ever really going to affect their daughters. I think that's wrong because I think as there are more and more transgender people in this country, it will become a larger and larger problem as we move forward. Um, but I think the third reason is, and this is the trickiest one, I think sometimes they don't necessarily know that it's happening because not all transgender people are out and they won't necessarily tell you. And some of them can pass for the gender that they identify with. So, okay. you know, there's a, there's a CrossFit athlete uh, by the name of Chloe Johnson, I think, who was born male and was competing in the women's division of CrossFit. And nobody knew that she was a biological male until she told them. Um, so I think in some circumstances, people don't know. Did you say 19 states are like Connecticut or 11 states are like Connecticut? 
19, 19 states allow unrestricted participation. Why isn't there a you and cry from, you know, call them backward traditional heterosexuals like I am, maybe, if you want to be insulting. But why people are afraid, I guess that's why, or they don't know. But I think they're more afraid. Isn't that, isn't that the predominant reason you don't want to be called a, what are you called if you object to this? Sexist or A adult? hater, a trans hater. right? Because it, people see what happened to Martina Navatarola. Martina is one of the world's greatest tennis players of all time. Um, she is, uh, you know, lesbian, um, gay rights activist, progressive in every way. She's on the board of a number of, of LBGTQ organizations. She wrote an article um, for the Times of London saying, look, I'm perfectly happy to call you by whatever pronoun you'd like to be called. I'm perfectly happy to work alongside you. I don't want to compete against you in sports. It's not fair. And she called it cheating. And she said transgender women who were born men should not be allowed to compete in women's sports divisions. Well, the blowback against Martina was unbelievable. She was kicked off of every uh, LGBTQ board that she was on. She was kicked out of these organizations and told that there was no place for someone with her views. So people see that. They say, well, if you're going to call Martina Navitarola a hater, what are you going to do to me? Do you, do you suppose there are, is this is some, maybe some theory of evolution, that there are more transgender people now than before? Or is there a kind of casting call going on across the land? I have is, no that is idea. The, okay, okay. I mean, there are okay. definitely more people who call themselves transgender, right? And why that is, I don't know. We need to wait and see. Are all these high school and middle school kids who say they're transgender when they're, when they're 30, are they still going to be saying they're transgender? I don't know the answer to that. My guess is no. All, that they, many of them will not, but it's a phase. But I, I've heard stories of, I read a lot of stories of kids at seven or eight or nine declaring this. And that's just kind of ridiculous, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's definitely happening. Yes. It's, I mean, it, you know, I have kids in the public schools in Massachusetts, and if you ask them, uh, one's just leaving middle school and one's in high school, they could name, each of them could name four or five kids who say they're transgender. Um, now, I live in Massachusetts, let's be clear. But um, yeah, no, they can. And I don't know what it's all about. I think, you know, Kids go through a period of confusion when they go through puberty, right? All kids do, to some sure. extent. Sure. What's, what's Freud call it? Yeah, I mean, it's an old old doctrine of, of uh, yeah, I, I forget it, but there's a phrase in Freud about sexual confusion early on. Yeah, go ahead. Right. And when you're being told, you know, just to express yourself and just, you know... Maybe maybe you're trapped in the wrong body. I don't know. Maybe maybe did they you, just. Uh, did you know eight or nine transgender people when you were in school? Not a single one. Do you suppose there were? Uh, I don't Is this know. A problem of, of people I, I, not declaring, you know? No, I mean, look at when I was growing up, I didn't even know pe that people were gay. Although in retrospect, looking back, there were definitely a couple no, that, no. I, you know, I probably, if you had asked me now, I would have said yes. They probably.
you know, are. But but no, I you know, I have no I'm reason to saying, believe that anybody I went to school with is transgender. But who knows? Jennifer Braceres, I'm not saying it's not real. Uh, in some cases, it may be, but I do know for sure that in a lot of cases, it's a fashion. It's a call. I, I called. I made. I said a casting. I was watching Larry David show the other night, and I've, yeah, I've watched a lot of them. They're very funny shows. David is. Yeah. He's not my cup of tea politically. I ran into him in the elevator in the Regency Hotel in New York. The door opened. And he was there. I said, "You're Larry David. You're a very funny guy." He said, "I appreciate that coming from you. You're Bill Bennett, and you're not funny at all." I said, "Okay, <laughs> fine." It was worth it. That's it was a okay. Great it was fine. Story. Anyway, four or five episodes he had, you know, in his in his comedy, which is wicked comedy, attacking political correctness, people solemnly declaring about being tranny and tra- my nephews in transition, this sort of thing. And you know what David's doing? He's making fun of it. I don't want to make fun of people who genuinely have this kind of gender confusion, but. I, I, I do think there's, you know, there's, a, it, it's, a, it's out there in the land, and I think people pick up on it because it's, well, it's, it's prevalent, and there's kind of advertising going on for it. Again, I'm not saying that in some cases it isn't true, but I don't think in as many cases as we hear. Uh, let me ask you this: right. uh, com- comment on that if you want. But uh, most of the stuff that I've seen is um, biological males. I won't beg the question by saying males, uh, biological males uh, uh, making transition to female, or at least uh, in the case we started with going on to a female team. Has it ever, ever worked the other way around? I think you cited a case at Harvard, a swimming team, where um, yeah. a, 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 go ahead. So there was a case at Harvard where one of their top female recruits for swimming um, decided to transition to the male gender, took a gap year, transitioned, came to Harvard as a man, and was welcomed onto the men's team and swam for four years on the men's team. However, uh, by this person's own admission, they went from being the number one female recruit to the last male recruit. So there was, there's no competitive advantage. Right. And so none of the spots on the team, uh, none of those young men had their, you know, felt threatened competitively by this person joining the team. Right. By the way, uh, they knew she was female, right? Correct. Yes. No, right. it was all disclosed. And um, OK, are we going to see more of this? We are going to see more of it. We're definitely going to see more of it. Um, you know, there are a number of transgender athletes who are male-to-female transitions who are now breaking records. Of course they are because they're biologically male. Um, you see it in cycling. You see it in CrossFit. You see it in mixed martial arts. Um, I believe there's an athlete in women's volleyball, uh, weightlifting, roller derby. It's, it's becoming more and more common. If they win, are they going in the record books? I think right now nobody, people aren't really objecting to that. With an asterisk? Not that I know of. And other, the interesting thing is that female athletes, top female athletes, many of them quite left and quite progressive on other issues, are starting to speak up about this. Okay. And when they do on Twitter, like Martina Navitarola, they're, they're feeling the hate. I mean, people are coming after them. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how many of them continue to speak up. I was watching some of the Wimbledon, and I was watching this uh, young superstar, Coco. Um, Coco, yeah. 
Yeah, Coco, that 15-year-old phenom. And I was watching her with a, with a friend of the family who was number three woman on the, on the Maryland, University of Maryland tennis team. And I said, oh, how wow. good is she? He said, how, I said, how good is she? He said, she's great. I said, could she beat you? She said, oh, yeah, she could beat me. I said, you were number three on the Maryland tennis team. If, the, if guys were playing, what would you have bid? She said, 250. Right. You know, I, I said, can Coco play with Djokovic or Nadal? She said, not a chance. Not a chance. Right. So, so right. what are we doing? What are we doing here, uh, Jennifer? My my notion is there's an effort here, conscious or not, essentially to um, uh, deconstruct gender, or to put it, get rid of gender. Right. Let's say exactly. gender is a cult- cultural construct. Is that what's going on? That is definitely what's going on. And although a lot of trans activists will say, "What are you worried about? There are just a few examples of this. It's not an epic problem." The truth is that there are lots of activists out there um, who argue that there shouldn't be sex segregation in sports at all, that that there should just be one category and everybody should play together, you know, just like you would never argue that there should be racially separate categories. These activists argue that, that sex is the same as race, and they argue that, that, you know, there are no differences, they're all socially constructed, and... Male athletes and female athletes should all play together and compete together. So you can say that's a slippery slope argument, but there are people out there pushing for that, and, and that is their agenda. Their, their agenda is to eliminate the notion of sex differences. Yeah, I think so. Are you getting mail? Uh, a little email, yeah. Okay, okay. Just curious. Okay, you didn't write an anonymous column, I noticed. No, I mean, look, um, honestly, I try to be sensitive about it. I try to use the pronouns that people want to be called. Um, It's the same thing, you know, when people talk about, for example, pro-life and pro-choice, right? You know, I don't like it when people say anti-abortion or pro-abortion. Call people what they want to be called. I'm fine with that. So I try to be sensitive to those terms and consider, you know, the nuances of it and just sort of look at it from a legal matter and look at it from the standpoint of how are we going to solve this problem. And I think, you know, so far most people have appreciated that, but we'll see. Uh, you um, say in your piece, and we put a link up to your piece, and people should read all your columns. I do. They're really good. Thank um, you. One possible solution is the approach adopted by the NCA, which prohibits transgender females a transgender female is a, is a male, biological male, right? A transgender woman is somebody, right, who transitioned male to female. So Joaquin Castro got it wrong in the Democrat debate, right, when he talked about, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, he said that they should have access to abortion. Right, because that would be a guy, or biologically a guy, right? He's not going to get Correct. pregnant no matter what he calls himself, right? Right, I think that's why so many people found the comment amusing, but yes. All right. I would have found it odd either way, but it was odder that way. I agree with you. <laughs> right. One possible solution is the approach adopted by the NCA, which prohibits transgender females from competing on women's teams until they have completed one calendar year of testosterone suppression treatment. Why is that a solution? Aren't you still a guy biologically? Well, look, I was just saying there are a lot of ways to handle it. These are private organizations, and they can make decisions about how to handle it. But even that solution is being screamed down by activists, right? So so my point, there are lots of ways to handle it. The Olympic Committee used to say you had to have gender reassignment surgery and you have to have testosterone and you have to have this. And, you know, legally, I don't think that 
there's any argument that they can't have that policy if they want to. I don't think it's, you know, I think it's a complicated issue. And we have, my point in the column was we have to be able to talk about it without shouting down. But to okay. answer your okay. question about whether or not there's still men, I would argue, and I think most kinesiologists would argue, that um, it's not just about testosterone. That, first of all, if you've gone through puberty, even if you start suppressing testosterone, you are still bigger, stronger, faster, better lung capacity, more muscle mass, all of those things, right? So, you know, if you, if you decide at yeah. the age of, of, of 17 that you're going to transition to female, your body has already gone through all of the changes that, that turn a boy into a man, right? So that's one thing. Even, but, but testosterone isn't the only thing because it's in the DNA and the changes start, the differences sure. start sure. to emerge in, in utero, sure. right? And so, and so there are differences. Um, you know, there's, there's a transgender woman who consults uh, for the Olympic Committee, Joanna Harper, and, and she essentially says as much that it's not just about testosterone. The trans activists I mean, want to say, you know, anybody can manipulate their testosterone one way or the other, and then we're all even. But the other thing, and this is important for public policy, um, the Equality Act. Tell us about the Equality Act in regard to this issue. So the Equality Act is a bill that's pending in, in Congress. It passed the House um, that would add the categories of sexual orientation and gender identity to all of our federal discrimination laws. And so, you know, employment discrimination, housing, whatever. Um, but it would also apply to Title IX, which regulates education and, you know, athletics, college and high school athletics. Um, so this bill, um, going back to Martina Navitarola, she's come out and said that she's in favor of the bill. She's a progressive but that she would like to see Congress carve out an exception for athletics. Um, and, you know, it has no chance of passing right now in the Senate, so it's, the debate is really sort of just academic. But, but the point is that um, there's a movement to make gender identity uh, a protected class under federal anti-discrimination law, which would affect a whole host of things, including women's sports. Wow. Uh, I mean, you know, you say it's, you know, symbolic and all, but, you know, if you had a Democrat president, Democrat Senate, Democrats kept the House, they'd pass this, wouldn't they? Oh, they absolutely, yes, absolutely. A hundred percent they would pass it. It's currently academic in the current political state right. of play. But yeah, if there's a Democratic Congress and a Democratic president, um, this will absolutely become law. And then what will happen is there will be no room for compromise or nuance or private athletic associations to come up with their own compromises, they will all have to automatically allow biological men to compete on women's teams um, with no exception and, and, you know, without requiring them to take any measure whatsoever to decrease their competitive advantage. So it's the law, if passed, will be a very blunt instrument and it will have very negative effects. So Martina is for it, except she wants to carve out sports. But I assume then she would go along with the bathroom, go to the bathroom of your choice, right? Probably she would, yeah. I yeah. mean, when that first happened here, I'm in North Carolina as we speak, uh, I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I just, I, I said, are you kidding? Um, you decide what gender you are? Uh, well, you know, you'll laugh because in my, in my kids' high school, 
they had, uh, you know, girls' bathrooms, boys' bathrooms, and then they decided to put in a gender-neutral bathroom. And when they put in the gender-neutral bathroom, my kids tell me that the boys and girls just go in there and hook up in between periods. Yeah, it's become yeah. the make-out room. <laughs> well, sure, because it's, yeah, it's kind of like, for, yeah, that's advertising. This is where the, you know, the, free, right. the, the freedom lovers go. Yeah, okay, Lucy. And then my kids, get, my kids get in trouble. They want to use the bathroom, so they leave class, but they go all the way down to the opposite end of the hall because they want privacy and they want to go into, you know, a, a girl's bathroom. And the teacher said, why did you take so long? There's a bathroom across the hall. My daughter says, well, I don't want to go in that bathroom. There are kids hooking up in that bathroom. Why do I want to go in that bathroom? Anyway, the whole thing's a mess. The whole thing is a mess. Uh, now, let's conclude that, and I want two minutes, and I think your latest column, on which you kind of plastered. He's not my friend, but I kind of like him, Bill Weld. I mean, I know. Oh, okay. Did, didn't you? Because. I did, yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, I, you know, I, I knew him a little bit at, at, uh, in his Harvard time. And he belonged at Harvard. I mean, he's a weld after all. I didn't. Yeah, I was a scholar, right. scholarship student. But um, I, I, the two things I liked about Bill Weld. One, uh, in his interview about a month ago on TV, he uh, they said, ha, ha, you really think you can compete against Trump? He said, well, I don't know, but I'm doing better than all those Democrats. I'm number two right now. Which is, which is pretty funny when you think about it, yeah. right? In case it gets in, maybe he'll be number three. The other thing, and this is a serious point, is um, do you know about the Massachusetts miracle, 1997 to 2006? I do. When Mass- Massachusetts reforms. I just, I yeah. just researched it a lot and wrote about it in a paper I was doing. And it was extraordinary. And it was Bill Weld who appointed John Silber, my former teacher, uh, right. An employer who ran against, head, him, for, who ran against him. Exactly. Right. In fact, I was going up to Massachusetts to debate Silber, and Silber called me. I was his former student. I am his former student. And he said, Are you going to come out for me or against me? I said, Which would be more helpful to you? And he said, Certainly come out, certainly come out against me. So I did. <laughs> Uh, he lost anyway, but then Weld, I think very generously, appointed Silber to head this uh, commission, this panel, to reform education. And, and, and right. let me just get this point. Though a Democrat, a very conservative Democrat was Silber. Then, with the help of Tom Birmingham, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm bragging yeah, here, who was, my, who was my student at Harvard. I have all sorts of connections here. And Tom Finneran who, before he was indicted, right. was Speaker of the House. Do you know, like, three or four Speakers of the House in a row in Massachusetts all ended up being indicted and going to jail? Anyway. I do. I um, live here, Bill. Okay, okay you <laughs> Believe do. Believe me, right, I live it daily. Yeah. And that's no barrier to the next guy either. Uh, anyway, I, I used it as an example of not only what's possible, but that political collaboration was possible. Uh, one right. shining moment. And people are always asking me, can we improve American education? Well, we actually did in Massachusetts. And you we probably know that if, that if Massachusetts did. had the, been a the gold standard. And if Massachusetts had been a country, it would have been number 10 in the world. And now that's gone. They've watered it all down. Anyway, that's my gold star for Bill Weld. But what else is wrong with him? All right. Well, let me just tell you, I would love to come back another time and talk to you about the Massachusetts standards and what happened to them. Okay. Um, during the time that my children were in school, I saw okay. them go from the gold standard to a mess. So I'd love to talk to you about that another time. But Right. Do you know, you know a lot about that, right? You, you know a lot about that. 
It's one of the my favorite topics that, to write Great. about and talk about. Yeah, I'm going to send um, you my paper, which is just two paragraphs on this. But I remember noting it. I was, you know, Secretary of Education, you know, before that, but we kept looking, you know, for the gold standard. And by God, there it was. Uh, right. As we say in philosophy, you prove the possible by the actual. You know, go, go right, ahead. right. Um, so, Bill Welch. So. You know, the way I look at it, the guy's been having a 25-year midlife crisis. I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, you know, he left Massachusetts for New York, left his wife for another woman, left the Republican Party for the Libertarian Party. Who knows yeah. what's next? I don't yeah. know. So I just sort of look at it as, you know, yeah. his chances of getting any traction whatsoever are so limited. I just see this as an ego run, that he's yeah, asking sure people essentially to pay for a campaign to keep him relevant, which he's been trying to do for the past 25 years. And look, at I, I voted for him as governor of Massachusetts. I voted for him when he ran for Senate and lost. I was a, a big Wells supporter. Um, I thought he was a great governor for Massachusetts, but his yeah. time has passed. I agree. I agree. But you understand why, for a former Secretary of Education, that one brief shining moment of seven years was pretty special, you know? And you and I will talk oh, about absolutely. that. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do a rain check. I'll make sure I send you the paper and you can look it over and critique it. All right. Great. We I shall see. We shall see what happens. I think you need to update this thing that you wrote every three, six months, because I don't know where it's going. But this could be. I I believe that the world turns on the distinction between the sexes. You know, I think it was right. Chekhov who said he and she is the machine that makes fiction work. I think it makes life right. work, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, it'll be interesting to see because the Supreme Court has a couple of cases that it'll be hearing in the fall. They apply to the employment context, not the education or sports context. But uh, if they rewrite the statutes to include gender identity, um, that will immediately uh, apply to, to sports and education. The lower courts will apply it to those areas, and, and they'll take the matter out of Congress's hands anyway. So it'll be interesting to see what the court does. Fabulous. You're as good an interview as you are a writer, and we thank you, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Okay. Oh, give us uh, give us your call letter so people can get everything you write. Where do uh, they go so to find your articles? They can oh. find them on the website for the Independent Women's Forum, iwf.org, okay. or my website, which hasn't really been updated lately, but it's jenniferbraceras.com. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Appreciate Thanks. it. So, Claude... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people say, you know, politics, and you know, I don't want to do politics anymore. Well, you know, do you care about the distinction between the sexes? Because this Equality Act may be an academic mo- for the moment. Right. But Democrat president, Democrat Senate and House, it's law. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, no, you know, 100%. And I think it's even, like you said, greater than the uh, uh, bathroom um, debate or talk. I mean, when you just even look at... Sports and competitive advantage from scholarships. Oh to, my gosh! Uh, you oh know how do you how uh, she said something in the in, in the interview? She had mentioned mixed martial arts. How in the world does a, a yeah. biological man <laughs> step into any kind of physically competitive ring or octagon in that manner and compete physically against a woman? That I uh, you know this is that's ridiculous. Well, no, he may still compete very well. Right. No, exactly. You can't stand by and let that happen. I mean, no. what no. are we talking about here? What are we talking? Yeah. I don't know, man. I just, uh, I, I, this is, um, I, you know, this is one where I, I'd say maybe I should just keep my mouth shut and just, you know, 
I've, I've seen the checkered flag just, you know, five, ten more years. Mm-hmm. I'll be on my way. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't you, know. But it's interesting that you say that because, you remember, in the interview, we talked about where the outraged parents, where the outraged athletes, they're probably feeling the exact same way. Well, uh, maybe I shouldn't say anything and just see how it plays out. Well, look what happened to Martina. And you talk about an icon mm-hmm. in the women's athletic community, in the lesbian community. She was, you know, a superstar. Yeah. A queen. I don't right. mean a queen in that sexual sense, but I mean right. a royalty. And um, and what they did to her. So what would they do to some to folks me. like like you and, you and I? Yeah, we're toast. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. It's, I don't know where we go. Uh, I don't know where we go. I, re- I remember when I was Secretary of Education in the eighties, talking to one of my senior staff people, woman who's more sensitive to these things than I am. How good I may not be sensitive enough. And I said, well, you know, there's a different reaction you can get from, from, from girls and boys. She said, why? I said, the natural modesty of, of women. And she um, said, I, I would advise you not to use that phrase in public. Hmm. Really? Wow. Wow. Well, it also brings into play, you know, we talked about the liberal hierarchy of, of loves. I mean, you know, Martina Navratilova, you know, um, a, a lesbian herself, um, and, you know, as liberal as it comes, but she draws the line here. You know, where does the liberal momentum carry? Does it does it uh, tra- uh, stampede over her uh, on this and, and keeps moving forward or, or further to the left? Uh, or does it stop? This is one of the, well, the battlefields. This is one of the, the- well, well, the Equality Act is, is a big, big deal. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook to search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. We do read your emails, and we often read them on air. Love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and your friends. We'll catch up next week.